Since the Lebanese uprisings began on October 17th, a group of regular civilians like you and I gather at 8 a.m. in Martyr Square, the capital city's center. Please, all newcomers, go to Tony at the start here point next to the truck. Thank you. And these volunteers, they're there to clean, to clean up after the hundreds of thousands of protesters so that this public space stays clean for all those who will walk, march, sing, dance, and maybe even sleep in that square that day. And that might sound like it's not a big deal, because it's just cleaning, right? But in this country, with a garbage crisis that has lasted years without resolution, where it's not uncommon to see people throw coffee cups, tissues, and even trash bags outside their window, this, my friends, is a big deal. The act alone is like a revolution in its own right. And it's not a small group either. When our Kerning Cultures team went out to meet them for the first time, there were more than 200 people there, latex gloves and pickers and all, sorting through everything. I'm going to estimate around 300 the first, first day. And you see people just walking by and they're like, what's happening here? Oh, we're clean. Oh, okay, we'll pitch in. This is Hiba Dandashli. She helps run these cleanups each morning. Everyone wants to belong to something that is useful and productive. Uh, the growth in number has been uh, massive, amazing. Uh, let's say we went up to 450 the second day. Yesterday, I'm assuming there was around 750. This, I think, is one of the unintended side effects of these protests, citizens feeling a sense of ownership over their city like they haven't before, realizing that even garbage collection was yet another thing they needed to take into their own hands. Our producers, Tamara Rasamni and Alex Atak, who have been covering these protests, spoke to this woman, May. She was there with her young daughter. She's two years old, and actually, I've, I've lived in Lebanon all my life. I was born and raised here, and I came to a certain place where I really need to move on and I really need to leave this country because I can't take it anymore, me and my husband, because for her sake. I'm here to, to raise awareness for her, to show her that we are at least doing something before we try to leave. We're trying to immigrate, and at least I'm doing something for you. And what happened here, the revolution that is happening is like, is for us is so beautiful. I'm 34 years old and I've never seen something like this before. So this week we actually had a different episode planned, but sometimes your heart and your mind just can't help themselves. So on October 17th of 2019, as hundreds and then hundreds of thousands of people started walking all across Lebanon from Beirut to Tripoli, we needed to pivot. Several of us on this team, including myself, are from Lebanon. So this is all very personal for us. So here we go. The uprisings in Lebanon. I'm Dana Balut, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination the streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. We're going to do this episode in five parts, starting here with part one, Thursday night. Here's our producer, Tamara Rasamni. On October 17th, the Thawra, or revolution in Arabic, started. 
I was at home just outside of Beirut when I started seeing these videos on my Instagram feed of people walking through the streets of Beirut protesting, all calling for the government's resignation. That day, government officials and members of parliament had held a cabinet meeting and made a decision to bring in new public taxes. It was an attempt to help fix Lebanon's broken economy, and among them was a $6 per month tax for anyone who makes calls using WhatsApp. If you know anything about Lebanon, you know that that's essentially placing a tax on an app basically the entire population uses. I'm not going to linger too long on this whole WhatsApp thing because the protests and revolution are really about much, much more than this WhatsApp tax. For example, Lebanon hasn't had 24-hour electricity for decades, not since the 15-year civil war, which ended in 1990. So people who can afford it buy generators, which are usually just crazy expensive. And so much of the population deal with the power cuts instead, which can usually last for hours and hours at a time. That's electricity. Then there's water, where up to 70% of natural water in the country is contaminated. And in 2015, unsorted garbage piled up in Beirut, much of it burned or dumped in rivers and mountains to avoid piles of trash overflowing onto the streets. The government's solution to the garbage crisis today is to dump that unsorted garbage in coastal landfills right by the Mediterranean Sea. So the government bringing in new taxes while also simultaneously failing to provide any adequate public services like electricity, clean drinking water, proper health care, and most recently mismanagement of forest fires, people were fed up. But this WhatsApp tax um, came on Thursday, so we called for a protest at 6 p.m., which was two hours later. This is Nizar Hassan. He's a researcher and part of a political group called Lihaki. They were one of the groups who first started mobilizing, calling for people to go down on the streets and protest. And I'm the co-host of the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Who have been doing an excellent in-depth analysis of the protests in Lebanon these last couple of weeks. We started with like a couple of hundreds um, of protesters, but then uh, after blocking the first road, getting the media attention, uh, marching through the city, we ended up with thousands. And uh, this is where things really grew, I think in four or five hours, the, the number went up to five, six, seven thousand. And from there, I think it, it became a national uprising, something that we haven't seen before. Uh, not because we haven't seen protests that are against, you know, corruption and the political class, etc., but because it's so grassroots, so decentralized, and it's so powerful, it's, it's so... Um, inclusive of a coalition of people from across sex and classes and and different backgrounds. So the protesters have multiple demands, but the main one is that people are asking for a completely new government, a new prime minister, a new president, a new speaker of parliament, new members of parliament, everything. A new government independent from the political elite that have been in power since the civil war ended. One of the slogans that came out of the revolution that first night is Killun yani killun. All of them means all of them. We want uh, another cabinet uh, that is independent. So we don't want a cabinet designation. And then another cabinet that is independent from the ruling political forces. 
quite straightforward, quite, you know, um, achievable, pragmatic demands, in my opinion. These demands were the product of a few things chewing that really converged all at once on October 17. So there were the new WhatsApp taxes, but right before that, earlier that same week, the wildfires. The fires started in Mishraf and spread to several other villages, forcing people to leave their homes. Mishraf is on fire. Every house in it caught fire. Look around us. Very few people were lucky. All the trees are burning. So the fire started on the night of Sunday, October 13th. Um, officials haven't released an official cause yet, even till now. They say it's still too early to tell. But what we do know is that the fires began in the Shuf region, which is where part of my family is from. On Monday, the morning after the fire started, I found ash on the windshield of my car. And later that day, I decided to drive up to Damur to see the fires for myself. The road was filled with smoke and there were lines of cars and cars parked alongside the mountain. Um, there were a few fire trucks and a lot of just regular people bringing water tanks to try and stop the fires themselves. The night before, um, people had to evacuate their homes, and by Tuesday, the fires had spread to over 3,700 acres of land. That's about 1,800 football pitches of land ablaze, gone. But the authorities... They were incapable, really, of, of uh, doing any efficient interventions. That's George Mitri. He's an associate professor at Belamand University, and he's been monitoring and informing authorities of wildfire risks in Lebanon since 2007. And then uh, the official uh, Lebanon claimed and stated that they are not able to deal with uh, these fires. And they were started, they started to look for uh, support and help from neighboring countries like Cyprus uh, and, and Greece. It revealed how incompetent the government is when it comes to managing a risk that is so common, such as, you know, wildfires. Personally, I see a very clear link between what happened, like the fires that happened a few days before the uh, start of the uh, demonstrations on, on the streets. But this is uh, something that contributed, actually. It's not the only trigger of demonstrations. In general, people were um, already very anxious about the economic issues for the last few months and they become became very frustrated about this fire thing and it was boiling like people were bo- boiling but we're not doing anything about it yet um the taxes came on thursday and uh, they kind of broke the camel's back protests in lebanon have grown into massive numbers and spiraled into violence at times as people demand the resignation of the government across the country. The message these people are giving the government is we will continue to demand your, the, the resignation of the government. We're standing outside. Thousands have taken to the streets across Lebanon since Thursday to protest against tax increases and alleged political corruption. More and more people came out to join the protests in Riyadh al-Salih and Martyr Square, right outside the government and prime minister's headquarters in downtown Beirut. And then some people decided to go and block a road nearby, which is the Fuad Shahab Bridge. Which is also known as the Ring Road, and we'll get to that a little later. Obviously, this is not usually what we do when we protest. Um, As, you know, middle-class activists based in Beirut, usually we don't do that. Um, This is not the first means of protest for us. 
But it worked because after the bridge got blocked and traffic wasn't able to get through downtown, the media started showing up. Media started covering and uh, people understood that, oh, something was happening. Uh, they started joining. Uh, more and more people were showing up. We continued with more anger. Um, people were joining as we moved. People were calling me like, how do we meet you? So which people are really just like showing up in the middle of the march, um, trying to find us, where, trying to find where we are. Uh, we moved, we went to Hamra and then we did like a tour. A tour around Beirut. So for those of you familiar with the city, they went from downtown to Jemeze, down to Dota, across to Hamra and then back to downtown with more and more people joining as they marched. I think by the time we arrived to downtown, two hours later, it was like 10, more than 10 times the original number. It was insane. So this is really when we realized, oh, there's something, something much bigger than what we expected would happen. And we were so euphoric about it. After the first evening of protests, road closures carried on through to the next day, Friday. And they weren't just in Beirut, which meant that a lot of people across the country couldn't get to work. We couldn't really imagine that it would get even bigger. And Sunday, it grew much bigger. Um, I have never seen something as big as uh, Sunday. So if you've seen any photos of the protests in Beirut, you probably saw the photos of downtown on that first Sunday. Some people said there were a million people there. Some people said it was two million attending the protests all over the country. And although there hasn't been an official census in a little under 100 years, the population's estimated to be about four to six million. It's a, it's a sea of people, really. I don't know how many people were there. I don't care about the numbers specifically, but it was really one of the most overwhelming, overwhelming moments. And it wasn't just Beirut. The difference in this revolution and protests that have happened in the past is that people gathered across Lebanon, all of them calling for the same thing. Because it was not called for by anyone specific. It was just people calling each other and, yalla, you know, uh, encouraging each other to take, uh, take action. People were just taking action out of their own agency. And this was really beautiful, as opposed to this, this idea that we have about Lebanese people, that they are only marching when political leaders tell them to do so. It's the only time since, I think since uh, 2005, that I've seen this much, this large of a coalition come together uh, in support for a revolution, what they see as a revolution. Part two, Killun Yani Killun. All of them means all of them. So I'm not going to pretend that my role in this episode is objective. I'm emotionally invested in this movement myself. I've been going to the streets nearly every day since this started, and it feels like everyone's lives have been put on pause. We go to the protests, keep up with them on social media, the news, WhatsApp groups, sleep, and then repeat. Half of the KC team, myself, Dana, Mohammed, Tala, everyone in and outside of Lebanon has been glued to what's happening. A city usually plastered with political posters and party flags, green, yellow, blue, orange, was instead now just a sea of red. People were smiling at each other on the streets of the city, waving Lebanese flags from their cars, beeping at each other in support. The Lebanese spirit was really nothing I had ever seen before. 
It's been a roller coaster of emotions, from hopefulness to anxiety over the uncertainty of our future, which I think many people share. But there's this one moment that I think exemplifies this best. It happened a day after the protest started on a national TV show called Sar al-Wa'it. And it starts with a woman called Rida Farhat. So I'm Rida Farhat, a Lebanese girl, and I'm not going to use the word activist because I'm not. I'm someone who spoke whatever was on my mind. Rida is 21. She recently graduated from college and before last week had never really been to a protest in her life. So it was on Thursday and honestly I was at McDonald's and it was the first time ever I go to a protest. So I was just sitting and my friend told me, you know, these taxes they put on us today and there are people in Beirut protesting. You want to go? So I told her, yeah, why not? And we were just standing with people and no one really knew what was happening. But that night on Thursday at 3 a.m., the army started throwing tear gas at us. And some people were beaten and we saw that. We ran away uh, and seeing those people getting hurt and screaming, I'm innocent. And all of this triggered all of my anger. So she decided to go on this show called Sar al-Wa'it, which means it's about time. It's a popular show hosted by Marcel Ghanem, who's really known to have interviewed some of the top political leaders in Lebanon. And the show usually prioritizes audience engagement, taking questions and comments from members of the audience. And since this was the day after the protests had started, most of those audience members had already been on the streets. So at one point, the producers passed the mic to Rida. And I didn't plan what to say. I had nothing in my mind. I started speaking and I couldn't control my emotions. I got tears in my eyes and I started speaking whatever came to my mind. First of all, we went down to the protest because of everything. Second of all, we're not thugs. We're university students that pay $15,000 per year to graduate and go abroad. We were in the thousands today. I just want to say, we are not thugs. We are not thugs. We came down to the protests, old and young. We've been on the ground since yesterday and we came here. It took us three hours to be able to cross roads just to come and speak here and discuss one thing. The politicians don't care about the Lebanese public. They care about what image the news coverage is showing to people outside of the country so that they remain in a good image. I just want to say one thing. Security forces yesterday, okay, there were some people doing acts of vandalism and chaos. That's the forces, right? But us yesterday, yesterday they attacked us. And we screamed at them saying, you're carrying the nation? We're the nation, not those sitting in power. They're not the nation. We're the nation. We're the nation. All of them means all of them. The Free Patriotic Movement, the Amal Movement, Hezbollah, the Lebanese Forces, or also known as the Uwit Party, the Hon Affiliates, the Marada Movement, the Progressive Socialist Party, all of them means all of them. Rida now pauses and takes a look at Sami Jmail, who's the leader of the Kate'ib party and a guest on the show. And the Kate'ib party were in power. 
sorry, but all of them means all of them. And if I forgot a party because I'm not remembering, I forgot it, of course, because I wasn't attentive, not because there's anyone who is an exception. My words weren't actually attacking one person, and this is so important. I wasn't focusing on one person. I was focusing on the fact that we're in a situation that's pathetic. A lot of people had related to what Rida said on the show that night. I got people saying, oh my God, we want you as a president. And I'm like, oh my God, no, I'm not an expert. <laughs> I'm not an expert, not a political expert, not in finance stuff. I'm not an expert and people are relating to me. But like they tell me, you spoke for all of us and we love you. And I feel like I want to hug everyone when I read their messages. On the show, she also talked about how many people have to leave because of unemployment. Marcel Ghanim, the host of the show, later asks her what her plans are. And she tells him she's waiting on a visa to emigrate for her master's in Canada. Yeah, you know, I graduated and it's from one of the best universities in Lebanon. And I couldn't find a job. I found internships. I did internships. But you know, you can't do internships forever. And this is the case for most of people. I graduated, my friends, they're all abroad now. The current Lebanese economy can't support its workforce. In fact, more Lebanese people live abroad than in Lebanon. And we've seen this in the uprisings around the world these last few weeks. Lebanese people joined in solidarity in more than 50 cities, all calling for the government to resign, all of them chanting, Killun yani Killun. Part 3 Revolutionary Chickens. When you visit Beirut, one of the first things you learn is that downtown isn't where people live or hang out. Here's Kerning Culture's producer, Alex Atak. All of the popular bars and the residential areas and the grocery stores, they all fall either side of this arbitrary circle of land that's just broadly called downtown Beirut. It was actually a very soulless place, uh, very much uh, driven by uh, reconstruction efforts by Saad. This is Nicholas Cosmetopoulos. He's an anthropologist at the American University of Beirut. Uh, we'll get back to him in a second, but first, a 30-second history lesson. When the Civil War ended in Lebanon in 1990, um, downtown Beirut was unrecognizable and basically uninhabitable. So the prime minister at the time, Rafiq Hariri, uh, he created this company called Solidaire to take charge of the reconstruction of downtown. Hariri, by the way, was also the founder of Solidaire, which made it this half-public, half-private enterprise. Anyway, they rebuilt downtown entirely. Some of it was a brick-for-brick brick replica of what was there before. Some of it was new and fancy. Uh, what were the souks before the war is now a shopping mall that could be anywhere in the world. There's Zara, H&M, Prada, a ton of high-end designer stores. That's what Nicholas was talking about a minute ago when he said soulless. It made it actually an exclusive place for rich people, for tourists. Uh, it's like a facade. Uh, and they were focusing strictly and only on profitability through real estate. This is Jamil Mawad. He's Nicholas's colleague, um, a lecturer in politics at the American University of Beirut. So that's why you have you see some very fancy private buildings, but any space that brings people together and you know creates a public has been delayed intentionally by Solidaire uh, because they want basically to uh, guarantee profitability. It's worth mentioning here that um, this feeling that the government prioritised profit over the public good, that profit doesn't trickle down to basic infrastructure like public utilities. This is exactly what the protesters in Lebanon are trying to highlight. And downtown Beirut was like a perfect metaphor for it. So that's the narrative about Solidaire. Uh, for all that it's done to rebuild downtown Beirut, 
it's done it at the expense of a once vibrant community centre. Because historically, as in pre-1975, downtown Beirut was a place for the people, um, a place where people actually lived uh, and where they actually spent their time. Where the centre was very much populated by everybody. You know, I mean, it was a centre, a popular centre. The buses were coming through. You had like a Madine, you know, a, a typical, you know, old city style where you had different merchants, a different kind of uh, popular classes also visiting the city. And there are these two buildings that stand out as easy contrast between the new Solidaire vision of downtown Beirut and the old pre-war cultural hub downtown Beirut, uh, the Egg Cinema and the Grand Theatre. They're both on the same street, uh, about a block down from each other, on the same side of the road, and they both look out over the new Solidaire downtown, but they're completely untouched by it. Uh, so, like, for people that have, like, never been to Beirut, can you describe the egg, what it looks like? All right, the egg looks like a big egg. Uh, which hangs, hangs from the sky somehow, uh, like what 20 meters uh, off the ground, and it's a cinema. You suppose supposed to be a cinema, but it's the relic now. I mean, it's empty now. I don't really know how else to explain what it looks like, other than to just ask you to imagine a giant grey concrete egg uh, hovering above the ground on pillars. So it's somehow as if it's uh, you know um, hanging in the air in the abstract. So and the Grand Theatre, uh, a few blocks down the road. I feel like the name says everything you need to know about it. It's it's literally a grand theatre, four or five stories high, giant arch pillars over a balcony that overlooks Beirut. It's beautiful. But both of these buildings are closed off, uh, separated from the road by construction fencing and closed off for public access since the 1990s. I mean, it is a presence, a present absence in the middle of everything, in the middle of this uh, new Beirut downtown. It's kind of a haunting presence, you know, like a ghost. So when the protests started last week, uh, the American University of Beirut, if you remember, that's where both Nicholas and Jamil work, they closed their doors until further notice. And uh, a few other universities did the same, the Beirut Arab University, LAU, and uh, Notre Dame University. And Jamil, Nicholas, and a bunch of other lecturers, they saw this as their chance to take their lectures outside, elsewhere in the city. So uh, at some point I was at protest, uh, like, uh, um, everyone else. So uh, I realized that some um, people are get are are coming in the Grand Theater, Le Grand Theater uh, of Beirut, which was closed in '75 because of the war, and so it wasn't accessible for people. So I went in. People were freely climbing in and out through a gap in the fence. Uh, so Jamil followed them in. Uh, it's like any other opera house in the world. It's different stories, uh, but you see that you know uh, the scars of the war, some graffiti. And he's walking about this place, uh, seeing how excited people are that they have access to this building for the first time. So I thought, oh, why would I not give them the talk on uh, the site itself? Uh, so that's what he did. That evening, uh, he gave a lecture to some visiting students in the ruins of the theatre. Uh, there's no way to confirm this, but I'm going to go ahead and speculate that this was the first time this place has been used for a public gathering like this since before the war in the 70s and 80s. Across the street and around the same time, uh, early in that first week of protests, Nicholas went to scope out the other building I was talking about a minute ago, the Egg, to see if it would be possible to host lectures inside of it. It has a good acoustic inside. You still have the stairs uh, and the seating uh, function of the amphitheater of the cinema. So it was great actually for teachings, you know, in terms of the architecture. But at the same time, it was an amazing place, practically speaking, you know, architectonically speaking. But symbolically, it was actually also uh, bringing us back to a pre-war Beirut. I should say, though, um, these buildings are not safe. Uh, Tamara and I went around both of them this week, and they're unnerving. 
I mean, in the Grand Theatre, there are these doorways that open out into two-story drops, uh, rickety ladders that you're supposed to climb across to get to a new level. The staircases have crumbled. As my mum would say, they're an accident waiting to happen. It's also a bit scary because you don't know, are you going to just fall through a hole, you know? And we did check at least, you know, with engineers about the egg and the amount of people we're talking about. Yes, we did. We did immediately. Uh, so we are not that careless. We immediately Nicholas and his colleagues called their lecture series in the egg the Eggupation. Throughout the week, they hosted a series of talks um, about capitalism, uh, about the future of the protest movement. Tamara and I uh, went to one of them. To get in, we climbed through a hole in the fence and up a metal staircase. Inside, it's nearly pitch black. The only natural light comes from a sort of opening at the back of the cinema. It's not a design feature, really, but just where the wall has deteriorated. Um, at the front, there are these six enormous Lebanese flags that hang from the ceiling as a backdrop, and there's a host standing in front of them with a megaphone. The talk we went to was sort of like an open mic. The host would ask an open-ended question like, what's wrong with the country? And uh, audience members had a minute to get up and answer however they liked. It was sort of like group therapy. And for people like me who don't speak Arabic very well, there was a WhatsApp group you could join and uh, somebody was typing out a live translation into the chat. By the time I spoke to Nicholas at the end of the week, he was looking at where else in Beirut they could reclaim for more lectures. It was like the protests had opened up a sort of floodgate and now any previously off-limits building was open to interpretation. He told me that the egg had taken on a life of its own and, forgive the corny analogy here, that this egg was going to hatch. We just want to suggest an idea that might be taking in, you know, take, go into different directions uh, and give birth to many chickens running around, you know, uh, revolutionary chickens. Yeah, and uh, they can actually bring some havoc to, uh, to the ways we think about symbolic order. You know, why should we actually not move into claiming property that has been actively stolen from the public or has been excluding the public from it? Uh, and we can at least reintroduce a debate about how to think otherwise about these spaces. Part four, a new Lebanese identity. As we've mentioned before, the revolution isn't just happening in Beirut, which is what made this different from anything Lebanon has ever seen, because this is a very decentralized revolution and this is very important. This is Rana Khouri, a longtime political and women's rights activist. She's been fighting for a better Lebanon basically for most of her life. And solidarity messages from Tripoli to Sur, from Mawati to Jaladib, from Zou to Beirut, all these messages of support are actually they are creating a new identity that we need, which is the identity of the Lebanese people. Dana has been spending hours at a time in the streets protesting, so she comes prepared. So I have a bottle of water, um, two bars of chocolate. Um, I have the Lebanese flag. I have a notebook, I don't know why. My phone and then power bank to charge my phone two packs of cigarettes and a lighter that I lose every day. <laughs> and that's pretty much it, actually. In between being on the streets every day, she also has a kid to take care of. When you have a two-year-old and the daycare is obviously closed, which is fully understandable, 
um, you still have to have some mother duties. Um, so the shifts we are uh, kind of um, trying to uh, abide uh, by me and my husband is um, I take over in the morning and he takes over in the afternoon, uh, taking care and entertaining our, uh, our son. That morning when I spoke to Rana, she'd been with her son, who's two, painting Lebanese flags on the floor of a parking lot at this event organized by a few moms. We painted and then we took him to the square. We tried to explain a bit what's going on in simple language, you know, like there are people who are here in the country, they're not cleaning it up, they're not making it safe for us, they're not uh, giving us enough freedom. So we take, you know, the basic language and try to explain to him why we're actually not always with him because I feel he's a bit anxious about that as well. For the past 20 years, maybe, I've been on the streets much more than I've been home, which tells you a lot about the fear of losing... um, this big battle now um, at a point where I personally feel this has been so big and so beautiful that I'm kind of emotionally attached to it and I feel that it's it's a very important opportunity for us the Lebanese people to be able to build a state that respects us but also that Uh, takes into consideration the way we are today. We are non-sectarian, we don't hate each other, uh, we want to live in dignity, we want to live free, and, and this state doesn't reflect this at all. I think revolutions, when they're really uh, like pop, popular people's revolutions, they are a mirror of the society. And in, in our society now, We're doing this revolution and this is the way we do it. This is our rules. There will be no sexist um, tones. There will, we will not accept any um, harassment. The people you're hearing are a group of feminists who have been leading the revolution in Riyadh al-Salah with their chants and movements on a daily basis. They discourage chants and language that had sexist undertones, which are most curse words in Arabic, and came up with their own chants. I'm always surprised. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not a very optimistic kind of person all the time, and every time I'm surprised so I'm, by um, whether friends or people I've never met or... For, of all this resilience, so this genuinity is very, very important. This ability to be organized without organization, this ability to lead without leaders, this ability to take initiatives. Um, people, just a group of people took an initiative uh, yesterday to do a human chain, and just, it worked. And for me, like, how did this work? There was this crazy initiative to create a human chain from the north to the south of the country on October 27th. Nearly 170,000 people linked arms to demonstrate their unity. Someone even sent a sandwich from one side of the chain all the way to the other side of it with a note listing the location it started in. You know, all of this creativity that was, that I think it was um, oppressed for so long and now it's, it was there, but we, we didn't have a way to see it. Protesters also blocked the main highway linking two different parts of Beirut called the Ring Road. It symbolized how life wouldn't return to normal until the government stepped down. 
They set up a living room in the middle of the road that they then listed on Airbnb. They hung a banner at the beginning of the road saying, you shall not pass, signed by the Lords of the Ring. There were people grilling shishtahut skewers and then others playing football. I think we should avoid another trap that the government is setting now, which is stay in the street, but life will continue to normal, which means life before the revolution will come back. And this, for me, is a nightmare. So blocking the roads, actually, means we are blocking the way for this government to get us back to what we were 12 days ago. It's just asking for a resignation of a useless and corrupt government. Part 5. What's next? Since the beginning of these protests, there's been this question in the background of everything. If the protesters' demands are met, what do they do with that? And what comes next for Lebanon? The whole time we'd been covering these protests, uh, Tamara and I have been going to these open mic discussions that have been trying to address those questions. In the early evening, as the sun goes down, but before the protests get noisy again, groups of people have been gathering in parks, under tents and on street corners, sharing their hopes and visions for the future of their country. Actually, I've been mostly to the Samir Qasir Square's talks, and I feel that they're very important. I've been one night to, a, you know, to um, a discussion that would have been um, violent uh, in any other time, and yet they were discussing complete opposite views. Um, it was about the way forward, complete opposite views in such a calm way and with such a smile. And for me. For me, that's how debates should be and democracy should be. What I'm hoping for is, what I'm, what I'm confident about is that people have a lot of energy and they will continue protesting. This is Nizar Hassan again. So I'm very hopeful about um, people's energy. I'm very hopeful about their unity around their demands. What I'm worried about is that the disruption uh, of the country is slowed down because the other tactics that the government is trying to imp- is trying to use is uh, scaring people away from blocking roads, is sending thugs to attack them or to cause kind of um, uh, strifes between the protesters. Protesters had been continuing to call for road closures, but on Tuesday, October 29th, a group of men arrived at the Ring Road and started beating protesters and journalists, taking down tents and trying to set them on fire. They'd moved down from the ring roads to protest grounds in downtown, burning and breaking tents that had been set up for public discussions and to distribute free food to protesters. But then, about an hour after this, on the 13th day of protests, Prime Minister Saad Hariri was scheduled to speak to the country. And in a two-minute speech, he resigned. I'm at a dead end, he said. Jobs come and go, but what's important is the country. No one is bigger than this country. This last sentence, no one is bigger than this country, is a quote from his late father, Rafiq Hariri, who was also Prime Minister of Lebanon for many years and was assassinated in 2005 by a car bomb. He's buried outside the Al-Amin Mosque in Martyr Square, right where the revolution has been unfolding. What Saad Hariri's resignation means for the revolution, of course, we don't know. But for now, Hariri's resignation means his entire cabinet will also be resigning. The president will need to choose an entirely new cabinet that's reflective of the revolution's demands. But 
for the revolution, Hariri's role is just one part of an entire governmental system that the people want completely replaced. People returned to the street in celebration after his speech and kept the ring road closed that evening. They're singing Yalla Bai to the sound of the Italian resistance song Bella Ciao. This was two days after Hadidi's resignation, and to be honest, I was feeling a little worried because there hadn't really been as many people on the streets as there were before. But here, seeing everyone gather and take the streets walking to the ring road reminded me of the ebbs and flows of a revolution. This is Rana Khuri again. All the parties in power have said this government shall not resign and shall not fall, and yet it did. However, I'm not sure how long we can uh, keep up. And it's very important to remind ourselves every day why we're doing this and, and, and why we should keep up. And, and sometimes when I feel tired, I have to just shake myself and say, okay, you're doing this because your life 12 days ago wasn't the life you deserve or your son deserves or your friends deserve or this country deserves. So again, every time I feel desperate, then I come down and I'm so full of surprise and happiness. So it might just be another um, day of this. And then in the afternoon, I'll tell you, I'm very, very happy. And I'm very, I'm very proud of, of belonging to this revolution. We want to end on a note that captures the spirit of this revolution. So here's a snippet from a woman named Lore Ghraib, who had joined protesters to block off the ring road. She's a former journalist and artist, and when she was on the road, a reporter started to interview her, asking her if she's lived through the civil war. So she responds, I've lived through hundreds of wars. I'm 88 years old. The reporter then asks her, and since you lived through the civil war where there were a lot of different political parties at play, today, who do you support? As in today, who are you with? And so Lord responds, with Lebanon. And the crowd cheers and one member says, she's with Lebanon and she's the cedar of our country. And then they chant and sing, calling her Teta or Grandma, saying, For your eyes, Ya Teta, I'll change the country, Ya Teta. Before I lose you to the credits, I want to ask you for your help, and it's not money. Listen. If you like Kerning Cultures, please leave a rating and a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to us on. It takes like a minute of your time and makes all the difference to us. It helps boost our ranking so that other listeners can find us. If you haven't subscribed to the show, be sure to do that. Like right now. Do it right now. Okay. Also, a huge thank you to our new patrons supporting us on Patreon. To the two Reims, Beatrice, Travel Vince, Usama, Abakor, and Latifa, you are making the production of these stories possible. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. If you're listening to this and would like to financially support us, not going to stop you. 
go to patreon.com forward slash kerning cultures. That's P A T R E O N.com forward slash kerning cultures. You can start with just a dollar a month. That's like a third of your cup of coffee in the morning. Even that will make a difference. This episode was produced by Tamara Rasamni and Alex Aitak with editorial support from Hiba Fisher, Hannah Myrick, and myself, Dana Balut. Sound design by Mohamed Khreizat and fact-checking by Zena Duwaydar. Thank you to everyone who we spoke to for this story and for making the time for us, especially on such short notice and with so much happening around you. If you want to follow the politics of this more closely, check out Nizar's podcast. It's called The Lebanese Politics Podcast. Thanks, everyone. Have a beautiful day. Take care.